It's October 26th, 2023. Hi there. Welcome to episode 292 of Rook. We need to deprogram hate. We've become captives of our algorithmic social media feeds. That internet we once hailed as a beacon of unity has become a crucible for animosity, trafficking in the most extreme opinions, forsaking its utility, peddling global hostility. We need to deprogram hate. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam dostan aziz. Durud bashama. We need to deprogram hate. I don't entirely know how we do it, but we know we must. And this idea is tragically naive. There are people being killed right now. So maybe it sounds twee, the equivalent of all you need is love or hugs are for free. But things are different in the 21st century. Technology is animating our worst instincts. And those smartphone feeds we so adore are also breeding grounds for a push to more war. And I know you probably want me to blame one group, a hundred percent, only one side, one version of history or one action. Let's not let nuance get any traction. Our screens were once meant to be our windows to reality, but they've become our jail cells. We need to deprogram hate prisoners of our own echo chambers and algorithmic feeds. We are cocooned in a curated reality with platforms meticulously tailored to echo our existing beliefs, creating a comfort zone that hinders exposure to alternative viewpoints. We need to deprogram hate. Oh, I know you're angry. You are pissed. The world is a fucking mess and your beef goes back generations and you should be angry. But anger doesn't necessitate hate, and humanity can survive anger, but not an appetite for global destruction or a cheerleading campaign for genocide. And that device in your pocket is stoking the tide. You know how this goes. We click, we scroll, we like, and the algorithms take notes. They learn what we fancy and serve it back to us on a digital platter. But there's more. They're programmed to amplify intolerance and extremes. After all, the content that stirs the strong emotional reactions tends to garner the most attention and clicks, driving a cycle that rewards sensationalism, polarizing rhetoric, the loathing of others. Go ahead. See if you can like this essay. Why would you? There's no valor today in seeking some kind of middle ground. Activists calling for annihilation of entire peoples are given the hero status they seek. Those calling for calm and understanding are derided as feeble and weak. We need to deprogram hate. And I know hate isn't new. In fact, the problem is that intolerance has always been available to us, always at the top of the charts, flourishing like a classic hit song through the ages. But never before have we been so readily programmed to be intolerant to latch ourselves to one ideological mob by platforms we inject into brains each day for hours with little balance or perspective or even information. Hell, depending on how strong your silo is, you don't even encounter any other perspective. We need to deprogram hate. And if you have some targeted loathing to imbibe, social media will help you condemn the entire tribe. Oh, you can detest the actions of a president or a military or a supreme leader or a queen, but then you better hate all those that support any regime because they are just programmed to fall in line for their team. And really, if you abhor Trump or Biden, 
Must you then hate all of their followers? Must you hate all Americans, or the Palestinians, or Israel, or all Muslims? We need to deprogram hate. Look, the algorithms have no purpose in balance. We're now designed to see red, and we consume and confirm our biases throughout the day across our platforms and on the screens we take to bed. We need to deprogram hate. And here's the thing, we can't just give in because we're not terminally stuck. The robot army has not annexed us just yet. We hold the power to break out of these algorithmic chains. They are, after all, a reflection of the human hands that shape them. We're not actually beholden to their dictates. We possess the power to reframe the narrative. We need to deprogram hate. Can we actively seek out different voices, engage with different ideas, challenge our own thinking? Can we harness our superpowers of empathy and understanding? Can we take some pride in reversing that algorithmic tide? Yes, the world is a fucking mess, and we are all increasingly the publicists and the victims of our growing divisions. We need immediate action to make some global decisions. We need to embark on a universal journey that really can't wait. We need to deny our own echoes and deprogram hate. Coming up, a new episode of Rook, including a feature interview with Afghan rapper and activist Sonita Alizadeh, plus the Rook Roundup with Pega and remembering Lily Afshar. This is Rook. Episode 292, We Need to Deprogram Hate. there from the Rook Studio here in Toronto. Welcome everyone listening from different parts of the world. This is Conversations From To and About the Iranian Diaspora. This is Rook episode 292. Hi, Smart Pega. Hello. You sat quietly as I did that essay? I did. I was thinking how sad, honestly. How sad as Not the quality of the essay. No, no, gosh, no. Quality of the essay was superb, but I was thinking how sad as a society that, you know, such large portions of these users, all of us, are just systematically unpleasant. I feel like it's been a, uh, are systematically unpleasant. I feel like it's been a kind of a through line. Like this this essay was brewing in me. I mean, I've, we've talked about this mm-hmm. a million times, but, but you know, even with the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about how we don't even know what information we can trust. Right. We, we, we hear something about something that's going on in Iran with the regime and, and we have to, kind of patch it together, mm-hmm. tape it together, figure it out based on a pattern of behavior that we've seen because uh, who can trust what's coming into their feeds knowing that we are caught in our own echo chambers. Mm-hmm. Um, and even knowing doing that that essay, I'm waiting for the reflexive responses, you know, from from <laughs> folks who are, I mean, as I said in the piece, uh, you know, we're so 
at times you're you're surprised you even i mean unless you go out of your way i, I do my best to try right. and go out of my way to see different perspectives mm-hmm. but on some issues i know i'm not seeing them because i'm For i'm sure. i'm the victim of whatever my my echo chamber is whatever my instagram feed is telling me that i i like to see even my apple news i figured out um they you know it gives you the headlines that based on the things you click on right, right? so so it just has figured out my interests and uh <laughs> and so i have to kind of go huh I've got a version of the world that is being curated for me. Mm-hmm. I don't even know, forget about hate, I don't even know the information. But I do think, I, I did try and turn it around at the end of that to say, I think we can do something about this. Because if we don't, if the answer is we can't do anything about this, then really we're we're screwed. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's just hard when, you know, it's become so easy just to go on Twitter for 10 minutes during the day and, you know, you rely on that information. You rely on those feeds. So it's almost like, you know, we might be aware of this, but on the day to day, how often are we sitting there saying, oh, okay, let me read something, but then let me check three other sources. It's it's hard to maintain that, that I don't know, that responsibility, I think. I, I had written this piece over the last couple of days, but then on my way here today, I was listening to a, a, a radio interview with this um this woman, Frances Hogan, does that sound familiar to you? No. She's the one who, well, she's got a new book coming out called The Power of One. But mm-hmm. but she became famous a couple of years ago as the Facebook whistleblower. Like oh, She okay. worked for, actually, she originally worked for Google. And then she worked for Facebook for two or three, or Meta for mm-hmm. two or three years. And then came out and, you know, um, shared a bunch of information. Right. Uh, and she makes the argument that that, that, that Facebook, and we, we know this, or Meta as it's now known, knows its platforms cause harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was inside the beast and can stoke hate or even war, but won't change anything due to soaring stock prices for right. profits, right? And she said at her time at Meta, profits were were kind of contingent on ignorance, on no one knowing wow. how large the gap between Facebook and Instagram's public narratives and the truth had grown. That's you know, scary. as long as people don't figure this out, let's just keep. And you hear these things of of these executives of these companies not letting their kids go on I social media. I was just media. gonna say exactly. <laughs> like, it's no wonder. Yeah, because they know. They know. Right? Yeah. I mean, that goes even a step beyond what I was thinking. I was actually thinking, well, you know, social media needs engagement more than anything else to work as a platform. And I mean, what leads to engagement more than controversy and hate and of course, you know, yeah, fueling the fire, so uh, to speak. Yeah. But what you're saying is that's even one step ahead of that. It, yes. It's true. Truth and fact and yes. withholding that really yeah doesn't matter doesn't matter and, and again I mean I'm obviously not the first person to say this and right. and but I do think it bears repeating over and over again none of these platforms are agnostic or mm-hmm. are uh, you know they're not just sort of objective kind of platforms of that exist for you know, they, they have their own agendas they have profit motives they have uh, they have owners they have biases they have you know so so even Google, right? We think, oh, well, Google, it's like... Uh, <laughs> it's the lesser uh, of all evils. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Milan Kordestani was on last week uh, right. saying his dad, who was one of the founders of, mm-hmm. of Google, knows that not to trust Google when you're... <laughs> It's like, well, what are we supposed to do, right? And I, I mean, I, I sort of laugh cynically because mm-hmm. we're, we're caught in this moment in the world and then, and then to 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 see all the, ang- the not just the anger, 
because I, I talk about anger being legit mm-hmm. uh, on some level, the but the hatred yeah. uh, from different groups and nationalities and ethnicities and people in the streets and, and to know that that's just being amplified and churned over and over and over and snowballing based on these things that we're carrying around in our hands. Like, it, it's like, could we have thought up a darker dystopia, right? And it's so accepted. That's the other part of it. It's like, you know, you talk to people and they all say, well, that's what Twitter's for. Or, you know, they'll say like, well, that's just the nature of Twitter. And and right. I mean, we've even said right. it. We've talked about it. We know right. Twitter's toxic yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah. all these things. It's almost laughed off. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, to, to think about it like this and to hear, you know, the words in your essay, I was just, that's why I was saying it's so sad. And it's not, it's not, we often talk about how Twitter's not the real world. Mm-hmm. It's not the real world, but it does have real world implications. Of course. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about a different type of uh, division, and that's the plight of the Afghan people, mm-hmm. uh, more specifically the Afghan immigrants and or refugees, um, and specifically the undocumented Afghans currently in Iran, mm-hmm. and the way they are treated, the situation for them. Recently, I don't know if you caught this, uh, we didn't do it on the roundup, but... Uh, it was just like two or three weeks ago that the regime in Iran declared once again that they're going to deport Afghans, mm-hmm. uh, undocumented uh, right. Afghans, Afghans who don't have an ID, who might not be uh, undocumented, but they don't they don't have ID. Um, and this action has the dual function of obviously terrorizing the the, the Afghans who then have to re- return to um, Afghanistan and life mm-hmm. under the Taliban that they've escaped to due escape, to war yeah. and and suppression and horrible you know conditions there especially for women and girls but it also somehow legitimizes discrimination against afghans who become the scapegoats mm-hmm. for dire economic conditions in iran unemployment etc so they blame that this is not dissimilar to to what happens with immigrants and refugees in, in other, other countries places, and, yeah. you know build the wall our countries <laughs> in the south in the united states build the wall keep the mexicans keep out, out yeah. but in this case we're talking about millions of Afghans who've migrated into into Iran. Iran has become the second largest place for refugees mm-hmm. in the world uh, after Turkey. Wow! Uh, and Iran's, uh, you know, got its own problems. <laughs> Certainly. So, <laughs> so the the upshot of that is you will find Iranians, as I have, even people in my circle. I'm going to put this to our guests who are not sympathetic to the Afghans mm-hmm. who go, hey, what well, you know, there's only so much we can do. Keep them out of the country. And, and which on the face of it sounds extremely racist, mm-hmm. but um, that's the, the reality of the situation. So our feature guest coming into the Rook studio, yes. thrilled about this because first couple of times we did interviews with her, she was, I think, not even on the continent and then more recently in New York, Sonita Alizadeh. Mm-hmm. Sonita being the... Uh, the person who the documentary film Sonita, uh, the award-winning film that came out in 2015, was about. She's a she was an Afghan, almost child bride, uh, who fights her way out of that situation mm-hmm. twice. Her family tries to sell her off as a child bride, becomes an activist against um, both the practice of child marriage, but and also an activist for gender equality and mm-hmm. rights in Afghanistan and Iran. She becomes a rapper. Uh, and she's now a rapper, activist, and Rhodes Scholar. 
incredible. So who I think apparently is going to Oxford next year. I got to ask her about that. But but um, she's been in New York studying. So anyway, she's in Toronto. She's going to come in to the Rook Studio. To we'll talk about a little bit about the situation mm-hmm. in Iran with Afghan refugees and and how that intersects with the the programming of hate. <laughs> um, Sonita Alizadeh coming up in the Rook Studio. Looking forward to that. Um, I guess we're going to do a Rook Roundup before we get to Sonita. Mm-hmm. I also want to play something else on this show, and that's an interview we did from back in September of 2020. Mm-hmm. That would have been the first few months of Rook. Yeah. And it's an interview with somebody who, very sadly, we found out passed away this week. Yes. Uh, a virtuoso of classical guitar, mm-hmm. Lily Afshar. Um, it was one of those things where I think I saw it was Bob Akamini or somebody had you know posted about it, and I, I did a double take. I was like, "What do you mean?" Because Lily wasn't very old. No. I mean, I think early sixties or something. Early sixties, yeah. Um, so it, it's just not something that you expect, and mm-hmm. and and uh, she was not just a. a, a an incredible guitarist, but a professor, a, a touring artist, um, somebody who uh, people who are aware of the prominence of certain artists in the Iranian community were very well of, were aware of her. She'd really carved out this this position in the in America that she was uh, well known for uh, at the top of her field. Um, so very sad news. So I so I thought we would play that interview. Um, I mean we're we're three and a half years into the show, mm-hmm. I guess we're gonna we're getting to the point now that people have been on this program who unfortunately, unfortunately yeah. uh, may not be with us anymore. So we're gonna we're gonna run that interview later on after Sonita mm-hmm. and at the end of the show for people who weren't listening to us back in September <laughs> twenty twenty, which is a lot of people because <laughs> our audience was quite small at the time. Uh, compared to what it is now, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, if someone out there wants to know a little bit about dear uh, Lily Afshar, um, the, the virtuoso, uh, will play that that interview. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, I was going to suggest before we even get to that, I was I was going to say before we even start talking about her, but there's so much to say about her. Um, I was listening back to to the interview and some of her music, and I really wanted to incorporate. Um, a piece of her music into today's program actually just to commemorate her one of the things she did was um, you know she rearranged or rather arranged um, some Iranian folk music specifically for the classical guitar and I thought some of that was incredible mm, so we yeah. have we have one of those just songs. like a, a, an album of that yeah she has an right? album yeah, yeah. she did numerous songs like that um, and the album is actually entitled A Jug of Wine and Thou and the song that I wanted to play is John and Maryam which was originally written by Muhammad Nuri and of course arranged by Lily Afshar so, so we're going to play a little bit of that yes. alright Lily Afshar. Lily Afshar. Um, 
and a, and a piece that was a traditional Iranian piece of music That's that right. she uh, rearranged and performed for classical guitar. For classical guitar. guitar, yeah. I mean, her successes were just such a true s- testament to the dedication and this relentless pursuit of perfection that she had. You know, um, listening back to her to her interview with you, actually, there was a part where she was talking about, um, you know, spending hours and hours um, behind closed doors just practicing and, you know, how the guitar opened up so many doors for her. And, you know, I think when you listen to her interview, when you listen to her music, you see that it's such a reflection of her unique like life story mm. and everything about her was reflected in her music. And it was incredible. It was really her. It sometimes sounds kind of cliche to say this, but it was her true love. That's right. Like, I think she carried her guitar with her. She said, she says, I, I'm, I my guitar is always with me. Mm-hmm. It was with her in the interview, right? right? She yeah. was holding the, holding the guitar. Yeah. She was. Actually, when, when I was listening back to the interview, that was one of the things that really surprised me because you were asking her and on the spot, she would kind of play. And I was like, I didn't realize that she had her guitar with her. Yeah. But She's not amazing. putting that thing down. That's yeah. right. That's right. So you, you had some clip that you want to play? Or? I do. I have just a brief clip from the interview. Um, so we'll play that next. The guitar always opened doors for me. I have met many people through the guitar and uh, I've traveled because of the guitar. And I've, you know, I've, when I was a student, I heard a lot of competitions, guitar competitions. So I would meet other uh, guitarists and teachers. Uh, you know, I, I traveled all the time because of the guitar. I, I even studied in Europe, in Italy, uh, for example because of my guitar. I went to academy in Siena three years and I would say it opened many doors. I won many competitions and I met many people. Yeah. That's so beautiful. It's an ode to her guitar. Exactly. (laughs) She owes it all to her guitar. Um, That's a a little snippet of the interview that um, uh, I did here with Lily Afshar back in September of 2020. We're going to play that interview for you at the end of today's show. Once again, rest in peace, Lily Afshar. Do we know anything about how she died or? No, actually, I I think there's been so much conversation about what a loss it is. Yeah. Yeah. And especially again in her early 60s. I mean, it's 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 a shock and and profoundly sad. All right, let's get to a couple of other roundup items. I noticed, uh, I know this is going to be on your list because uh, I noticed our favorite, um, <laughs> this guy, you know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, we always think of like the public enemies, number one is like Raisi <laughs> and Khamenei, like the, the leader guys, you know. This foreign minister, Abdullahian. Mm-hmm. He really, he really is a... Knows what buttons to press. He, yeah, it's a really Gosh. a nightmare. Every time you turn on your, your device and mm-hmm. see his face, you know? Because um, he's, the, he's on the front lines of the propaganda. Mm-hmm. Always. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, like that interview with Christian Amanpour, yep. which was infuriating uh, as he just sat there and sort of spouted propaganda. and. I think that was the time when he said uh, nobody's been killed during the mm-hmm. uprising. And, yep. you know. So he turned up in New York today. Today. Right? That's right. And, was... and these guys, I love how he gets a hall pass every single time. This is like, um, uh, on one hand, the Biden administration is, uh, you know, presumably living by the sanctions on the Iranian regime. We have nothing to do with them. We're condemning them for their role in what's going on in mm-hmm. Israel and Gaza and Hamas. And on the other hand, Billy, the the foreign minister here, it turns up and and rolling I mean, out the red carpet gets for the his visa. arrival, yeah, what, and what, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I agree with you. It's just infuriating to see him. But then the irony is just, it, it's laughable more than anything else. He was here to speak at the emergency special session at the United Nations General Assembly on the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Right. I mean, th- to me, <laughs> right. this is a joke. Right. Like, to have, an, to have him Because we're still not people. sure if Iran had any role. Of course. In the, yeah. That's right. The, the only people who are not unsure about that are Iranians, are Iranians who all know that Iran had a role and right. it's fine you're not being racist to say that Iran is responsible for a lot of this shit yeah. yeah and then as if that wasn't bad enough on its own he stands there and some of the things that he says so first of all he says that the United you're speaking in English by the way that's I was gonna I was, point to I that I was surprised yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that was actually a tactical move of course like, he's I, trying to appeal you know, to the the world he's yeah he's trying to appeal the to the world cuddly foreign minister yeah yeah one, I think he's trying to appeal to the world, and two, I think it, it was a show of, and I say this very loosely, but it was a show of power because, you know, to come into the UN, be welcomed the way he was, to be able to be there in and of itself, and then to stand there in English, and I don't want to go as far as saying threaten, but, you know, he, he did say that the United States wouldn't be spared if this if the ongoing tensions in the region continue and if no he was lecturing fact, about how everyone should respect peace and democracy the way iran oh yeah, does of course <laughs> that's what he was i mean it's almost it's comical you know it, it is exactly but i mean you know and then he went on to say um that iran or rather the islamic republic of mm. iran stands ready to play its part um in this humanitarian endeavor yeah. along with qatar and turkey yeah so I thought it was really he interesting. He can't believe what happened in the Middle East oh, yeah. in the last uh, two or three weeks. It's a complete surprise to him. Yeah. Humanity. It's really weird. It's really weird how um I it's I the way I mean, look, we we know this for years now that the the media is out to lunch on the Western media is mm-hmm. either out to lunch or complicit, you know, in in enabling the the regime, et cetera. Right. But it's so it's so weird that this doesn't get called out. I mean, why isn't this like a why 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 isn't this you know? I mean, I probably know the answer. Why am I asking rhetorically? <laughs> why why isn't CNN leading off with who let this guy speak? Right. Yeah. Well, the thing that is really interesting to me is that you know we. We, I say we, but, you know, the United States um, withheld a visa from Zarif years ago and didn't allow him yeah. into the country. And and that it was mild mannered. Exactly. By, yeah, by comparison. And so yeah. that that is the piece that really boggles yeah. my mind is that, you know, the United States has done this before. And, you know, Abdul, I mean, but Abdul now that there's no nuclear deal and there's been an uprising where and kids have been killed. Yeah. Let's, oh, no, let's, let's just roll yeah. out the red carpet yeah, yeah, and let yeah. him in. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's it's, de- it's depressing it's and deflating. It's very depressing, yeah. yeah, for sure. And thank you for your your um, lectures on how to fix the Middle East. Yeah, um, Abdullahian. You know, two cents on humanitarian endeavors. Like, yeah, to Gortini as Madar Arus. No. What? To Kalame as. Yeah, that's probably the too cute a saying for him, right? I shouldn't yeah, use it in this definitely. contest uh, context. Um, okay. Well, anyway, I mean, uh, th- this is not unrelated. When we talk about him getting a visa, though, um, y- you and I have been debating whether whether there's a a shift in the American mm-hmm. position on Iran. Like, I definitely would say, uh, I don't, I don't. I'm not going to hold, you know, I'm not going to necessarily commit to this and, and things can change within a couple of weeks, it seems. But but I would say based on what's going on in the world, 
And certainly based on America's stated support for Israel and against Hamas, it'd be very difficult to now jump back into the JCPOA. This The way it seemed like the winds were blowing two or three months ago, mm-hmm. where a return to engagement with Iran. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I, I definitely agree. And, I, and, you know, we talk about the irony with having Amir Abdullahi on here and the U.S. on one hand kind of saying, you know, we're going to take a stronger approach and then having him here and all that. But at the same time, we have to understand that, you know, both Blinken and Biden actually came out this week and said, um, you know, we don't want conflict, but we are prepared to defend the, the United States right. if things proceed and if they advance and so on and so forth. So we are seeing the U.S. take a stronger approach to Iran, I think, than they did before. But then again, but I, that I can't... that doesn't sound that, that strong. We don't want conflict, but... Because stronger than it was a couple months ago, yeah. that's for sure. But then, like you said, I mean, it, it's Yeah, so stronger than a couple months ago. Not necessarily stronger than a year ago. No. You know, that peak uprising, you know, the mm-hmm. U.S. was like, yeah, we we support, and then, you know, so much so we're going to have a garden party and not really talk about it uh, at the White House, yeah. Yeah. Very cynical, I feel like I'm I'm tossing things off that sound unfairly cynical, but I I, I mean, am. I don't cynical. think it's unfairly. Yeah, it's we, just, we've what seen are we, such yeah. a yeah. We've seen you know historically over the last year and a half, we've seen the United States administration go up and down with how they've been with the Islamic Republic. We've seen them welcome diplomats from the Islamic Republic. Yeah. We've seen them have garden parties. Yeah. We've seen them you know what. It's very hard to bear witness even via just watching the news or mm-hmm. you know talking to friends who have some some connection it's 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 very hard to witness what's going on in the middle east um wherever you stand out there on on who's in the right or or you know the plight of the palestinian people or the the horrors of what israel went through on october 7th with that horrible hamas attack it's hard to watch all of that as an Iranian mm-hmm. and know that there's complicity on behalf of the the Iranian regime. Mm-hmm. That's the part that, like, I, like, like I, again, I was at a dinner last night where a bunch of Iranians were, uh, were, were talking about, I mean, just because it's like what you talk about right. these days, what's going on in the Middle East. And I said, do you think that Iranians, you know, I mean, should is it a responsibility to mm-hmm. talk about Israel or Gaza or Palestinians or, and and there was a, a couple of people at the table who said uh, who were, took that sort of position of actually we shouldn't talk about you know things we don't know that we don't have mm-hmm. all the facts on and don't go and spout off on social media but but a couple of us like I was saying you know I do think we have the responsibility to talk about this friggin' regime this this the, yeah. the, what what the Iranian regime is doing I think we shouldn't leave it to others to talk about this mm-hmm. we we should be the ones talking about it as well or or leading the conversation um because i know i say this every show but i think there's this misapprehension that this idea that if you criticize the iranian regime in a moment <laughs> like this an iranian is going to get offended and right. it's like no 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 we're on side the majority of us i got to believe yeah that you know we we blame a lot of the instability and the horrors and the atrocities of what's going on in the world in the middle east on on this regime because it's done it to its own people exactly and and actually that's what i was going to say i think i agree with you and i think it's important to note that you know 
it's not irrelevant. The Islamic Republic has a hand in what is going on in the region. We have to remember, and I think we talked about this a couple of episodes back, that, you know, they are trying to spread the message of, or the gospel, if you will, of the Islamic Republic. They're trying to spread the propaganda, spread, you know, all of the hate, since we're on that topic yeah. today, uh, within the region. And that's what keeps them in power. That's what keeps them, you know, No, it's strong. the agenda. It's yeah. the spoken agenda. We are going to export our ideology and, you know, whoever at the in the current moment is on board, we're, yeah. we're going to fund. And, and then the, the direct support, the cheering on, the fan mail for Hamas and mm-hmm. Hezbollah. And, um, I mean, really, you know, the, the poor Palestinian people in Gaza. Do, do we really think the Iranian regime cares about these people? The Iranian I mean, regime what, doesn't what, care about its own it people, doesn't care let about, alone. Exactly. It doesn't you know. care about the, yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Um, is that it for the roundup? Did you have anything else? I had one more thing. Right. Um, just a couple of days ago, we saw the news of the sentencing of uh, Nilou Farhamidi and Elohim Mohammadi, mm. who were the two brave journalists who first reported um, on Massa Amini's yeah. death. And so they were sentenced to 13 years in prison, which is just, I mean, we, we've seen this time and time again, yeah. again. But every time I feel like... By the it, way, the crime was what? Oh, well, being a journalist. Well, yeah. Being a journalist. Yeah. But even further to that, they were actually accused of... Um, th- this is... I, I had a good laugh at this. They were accused of assembly and collusion to act against the country's national security. Mm. And the judge actually went so far as to say that um, they participated in, in, um, in courses of some sort outside of the country, mm. meaning the United States, of course, where they were being taught how to be spies mm. and how to um, spread propaganda against the regime and all of that. I mean, the sentencing and the judicial system in Iran, I think, just makes a mockery of the concept of justice as a whole. But right. to see this again was just, you know, I wanted to mention it because they were held in initially for a year mm-hmm. before the sentencing came out, and now they've been sentenced to 13 mm. years. And, I mean, talk about freedom of press, right? Somebody, somebody, more than one person has uh, said to me recently, why, why are you guys always talking about the, the depressing stuff? You know, do some, you know, you used to do funny things and, and fun interviews. Did you tell and this person to look at the state of the world? Well, well <laughs> I mean, no, I, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to do the gut check on us and go, yeah. well, are we, you know, you do tend to be a more serious person. This yes. is the stuff that you're more interested in mm-hmm. than hamming it up, you know, let's face it. Uh, but, it is really hard to, I mean, every time we approach this roundup, it's like, uh, what are we going to talk about? I mean, it, it, uh, it does seem weird to talk about, you know, some gig that's happening in Calgary that exactly. everybody should go to, you know, when the world is, is on fire and the Iranian regime is, is leading the, the way, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I'll do a call out to people out there. If you have ideas for the roundup, mm-hmm. if you have something you want us to talk about <laughs> that you think is relevant to the global Iranian diaspora and beyond, mm-hmm. not just the Iranian, and it is not depressing. dark, depressing, <laughs> upsetting, annoying, frustrating, angering, send it to me. Send it to us. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Absolutely. Maybe. <laughs> Info at rookmedia.com. Or you can just post on any of our platforms and say, mm-hmm. hey, why don't you guys talk about this? I'd love to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be but, great. I mean, you know, 
We have to go back to talking about cat pot chairs. Oh, it's God. usually food. <laughs> That's the only other thing <laughs> so we have the to only talk thing about. We, had. we have food and, <laughs> and shisha hash music. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, but we'll find something. We will. We'll bring some comedians on to <laughs> make fun of our latte or something. I don't have a latte. Or I'd like to think I don't. <laughs> uh, we're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. That's our website, rookmedia.com, where you can become a Patreon member by going to uh, to the website and pressing the support us button. It makes a big difference. A few bucks a month is how we crowdsource what we do here. So we really appreciate you becoming Rook members through the Patreon page. Uh, we are on a number of different platforms. So don't be surprised if you're looking for to find us uh, on a platform that you're not listening to us or watching us on currently. Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox, YouTube, Telegram. It's all there. All right. Thank you, Pega. Thank you. Um, I may see, we may see you for a bonus podcast on Monday. Okay. If, if there's a bonus podcast, <laughs> if not, uh, of course, next Thursday. Um, thanks for everything. Let's get to our feature guest who's coming in and mm-hmm. you will take your place. You know, we often discuss the difficulties of life today for Iranians living inside the Islamic Republic. But what about the millions of Afghans living in Iran? More specifically, what about the undocumented Afghans who are once again being threatened with deportation and according to international human rights groups, enduring ongoing discrimination and inhumane conditions? Well, our feature guest today is someone we've had on the show before, showcasing her talents and remarkable story. She is an Afghan rapper and activist who gained international recognition through a documentary about her and her life called Sonita. Sonita Alizadeh was born in Herat, Afghanistan, raised in Iran as an undocumented refugee for years, having faced the challenges of child marriage at the age of 10 and at the age of 16 again, She has become a high-profile critic of child marriage and an advocate for gender equality, women's right to education, work, and more. She is the woman behind the Aurezu Foundation, which is an initiative that collects donations to support and sponsor Afghan working children. And right now, Sonita Alizadeh joins me here in the Rook studio. Hello. Salam, Jian John. Thank you for having me today. It's really nice to have you in Toronto. Welcome. Thank you. I'm uh, very happy to be here, uh, finally reuniting with my family after eight years. You have some family in Canada. I mean, we, with the last we spoke to you, you were in New York, where you were also, you were lived there and you study there. But, um, but this reunion with your family who happened to be here after eight years, tell me about that and the emotional impact of of seeing them. I've, anyone who knows your journey knows yeah. you've been through a lot in your life already, in your young life already. What's yeah. what's it like seeing your family? So yeah, one of the very difficulties in my life was the separation between my family and me because I couldn't go back to Afghanistan. Uh, so finally, after eight years, I made it to see them. It was, I actually surprised them. I didn't see, uh, I didn't tell my um, whole family I'm coming I told my sister so we organized everything when they saw me um, everyone was basically crying because uh, after such a long time you finally made it. it it was super nice it's still so nice to be home and have my mom cook and seeing um, the kids grow because usually I would 
uh, be in touch with my family through WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. It's nice to be in person and I feel very lucky. You've been through so much and I know um, you've, I mean, you've rapped about it. You've, you've made films about it. You've been uh, an outspoken uh, activist about it. But do you get, I mean, given the trauma that you went through, um, do you get triggered? I mean, is, is on some level seeing your mom again, what kind of an experience is that? Um, I don't know how to answer that because I get that people think I should not like my mom or not be comfortable around her because after all, it was her who was trying to uh, sell Sell me into marriage. Mm. But I really hope one thing that people get from all of this is that my mom always loved me. She loves me. And again, the reason why she was trying to do this, it's because she didn't know any other possibilities. She was sold into marriage at age 12. So at age 12 being sold into marriage, what can you expect for your daughter? You will practice the tradition to be a good Afghan woman. So that's all she knew. Um, I often try to help people understand that if people try to sell or marry their daughters at a young age it's sometimes because it's tradition and sometimes because of poverty and in other cases because you want to protect your daughter from being raped Um, but I want them to know that they always love their daughters and they want the best for them it's just we need to help them to see that there are other possibilities for their daughters and we have to help them to understand that girls can take care of themselves they don't need to be uh, uh, sold into marriage or have a husband Mm. to take care of them i remember you saying this in a previous interview uh, your love for your mom and and a lot of people reacted to that in in the audience feeling like um they were quite moved by your um your love for your mom, your maturity maybe in seeing the situation for what it is, et cetera. I was just thinking more in a general sense. I mean, you've been, you know, there's so much that you have been through that you talk about in your life. Seeing your family is a reminder of all of that too, yeah. you know? Yeah, uh, and, and sometimes it can't be easy to be reminded. It, it is a reminder actually. Um, when I came to Canada, when I saw them, I went to the room they prepared for me and I saw a, p- a painting of me in a wedding dress. I sent it to my family and they had it on the Well, I was like, do you guys really want to have that? Because <laughs> I don't know if it's a good memory to have. But I guess they all, you know, they started to understand me and I started to understand them better. So right. I feel like everything is fine now. Well, it's nice to have you guys here. It's it's Thank not necessarily you. all fine back in Iran. I, I One of the Definitely. precipitants for having you here was because of the latest news uh, out of Iran. Um, this is just literally in the last uh, few couple of weeks yeah. that the regime in Iran has again issued a new threat to deport all quote unquote undocumented Afghans who have, of course, fled to Iran due to war, due to persecution, mm-hmm. due to poverty under the Taliban in Afghanistan. What do you know about this, this latest threat by the regime? This whole thing is kind of an old story for me because we have always been at risk of being deported, no matter 
when it was. It, ha- it had always been very difficult for especially Afghans who have no ID. And uh, my sister, my brothers, um, they all live still in Iran. And even those who have legal documents, they're going through so much difficulties. Uh, from the latest article that I read, they're saying that um, the reason they want to deport Afghans is because of you know, security, because of all jobs being taken by Afghans. And uh, they say that from 300 um, birth, uh, when uh, people go to hospital and then they write their names, whoever give birth in uh, Iran uh, from the woman, uh, they say that 197 of those are Afghans. And based on that, they think that in the near future, Afghans going to take over Iran. Mm. And uh, who knows, really, they don't know the actual number. No one really knows because Afghans, sometimes they come with passports, sometimes they come illegally. So there is not an actual number to say that Afghans are going to take over. And uh, I also think that this whole chaos uh, happened because the Iranian government really wants to blame someone or want to, uh, you know, distract people from their own uh, problems on someone else or uh, point them somewhere else. And that's, I think, the issue right now. Um, I- my family, they're living right now uh, in Iran, and they say even our neighbors have started to look at us differently because well, of the I, news. I, I wanted to ask you, but actually, let, three steps back. Um, by the way, because I, um, I want to ask you about the, the plight of what happens to Afghans when these dictates to deport them um, are, are made by the regime. But I also read that the, that the, the regime, uh, the government in Iran, wants to increase the population. So, um, I mean, Khamenei has this idea that in, in 20 years we have to get to 150 million people or something like that. And so... Um, there are certain uh, now. This is these are the nuances that you would know that I don't necessarily. Based on the type of Muslim you are, there are certain Afghans that are more acceptable than true. other Afghans, yes. right? Yeah, that's also another thing. I heard that they want to increase the population first of all because of voting elections, and the other reason uh, is because they want to prepare uh, army right. armies to. I don't know, to work for the Iranian government. Uh, but uh, I don't know if there are different groups. They're all kind of being treated the same, all Afghans. If not... The Shias uh, don't get treated differently from the Sunnis? Um, I, I don't know about that, mm. honestly. But uh, it could be uh, true because the population is Shia in Iran. Explain to me, when the regime issues these new dictates, when it says, you know, we, we want to deport these undocumented Afghans, you've said that it somehow gives license to regular folks in Iran to hurt Afghans, to, to discriminate. This, is, this has been said widely, that it increases the level of discrimination that Afghans face inside Iran. And we've seen examples of that even on video in Ghazbin mm-hmm. and something you posted one of those. Why does that happen? Why does... 
why does the the regime the the, the government saying this turn into that kind of discrimination on the streets from regular Iranians? I think Afghans and Iranian people, they're all so angry with whatever is happening in their lives with the, um, you know, economic issues and security. I feel like they're all, they have anger within themselves. Suddenly, if something happens, they're like, okay, this is my punching uh, box or mm. Uh, this is the moment for me to get out all the anger that I have because there is no reason to hate your neighbor who you used to say hi who you used to hang out with right. without any reason just hearing stories so yeah so it um, it gives license for people to further see Afghans as a scapegoat for the issues, the problems that they're having inside Iran. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans are said to have migrated across the border into Iran since the Taliban re-seized power. That was in uh, 2021. Um, And about the Taliban, you've said, uh, and let me quote you, my heart feels heavy. Two years passed and two decades of progress were undone. Countless homes were shattered. Women's dreams were silenced. Yet I believe as swiftly as the Taliban took over, they'll one day swiftly be forced to leave. Give it some time. Um, to catch those of us up, I mean, we, I, I think there's people generally know what Taliban means in terms of uh, how people are treated. But what, what do you know about the current conditions inside Afghanistan, especially for women and girls under the Taliban? Um, right now, the focus, as you know, is mostly on the earthquake, people affected by the earthquake. But uh, we are still focused through our zoo program. We are still focused uh, on women and providing them with basic needs um, and um, support packages. So there is still, again, Afghanistan is still the only country in the world that prohibits girls from going to secondary school. Um, This issue is still there. Um, But again, there are people who are trying to help girls by providing them with online courses. Mm. And uh, since they have been removed from public life, from governmental jobs, they have no other no other possibilities besides sitting at home and finding different uh, solutions. And some of those are uh, sewing, making jewelries, um, participating in online courses. And uh, it's, it's so pr- uh, hard for them because suddenly from, from reaching your goals and being pushed back to uh, decades, and uh, still, I see some of them being so strong, uh, not losing hope, because this is what you really need when you're in a difficult situation. What really gives you the energy to move forward is having some hope. Because yeah. for all of us, having dreams, having uh, a vision for ourselves, it's kind of a, like a map where you want to go in the future. And. Um, uh, in so many, I always tell people that uh, one thing that makes me unhappy with educational systems around the world is the lack of having a course to know, not geography or math or uh, history, but knowing yourself, knowing what you want to be in the future, just getting to know yourself. I'm saying that because when I 
emigrated to Iran, uh, I always wanted to sit in a classroom with Iranian kids wearing the same pink uniform. Um, and uh, when that didn't happen, I was lucky enough to find the NGO. And there I learned so much about myself. And that's the reason why I could continue during all those mm. difficulties. Because within me, um, hope was alive. It didn't, me it didn't matter that all the doors were closed. It was important that I saw a possibility. How do you keep that hope alive? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that either through fans of your music or through the work you do um, with Arazu, et cetera, you are in touch with young women, young people inside Afghanistan. How do mm -hmm. you keep that hope alive when you're living under the Taliban? Now keeping hope alive is easy. I'm talking about years ago when I was only 15 years old and a child labor. Not you. How do the kids today in Afghanistan keep hope alive? Right. I'm, I'm going to tell oh, you okay. through my okay. story. Because okay. uh, I lived with kids like me inside the NGO in Iran. And I saw them coming to class, uh, basically being there to escape work. Uh, slowly they started to really uh, feel like life could be better with having uh, dreams. And that was because that class opened their eye uh, to a different future. Mm. Um, this is like, um, okay, I'm gonna give you another example. So my mom, when she was in Afghanistan, she was surrounded with people who had no idea that a different life was possible, mm. that you could let your girls go to school. You, you could basically speak your mind without being uh, you know, judged. And that idea through social media, through different examples, they started to change their point of view. Mm. So having a role model really, really helps. For all of us who were stuck in a bad situation, especially for my sisters who were sold into marriage, it's because their role model was no one but the girl next to us, the neighbor who got married, had kids, right. and they all wanted to be her. Right. So role model is very important. But if if you, I don't know if you're in touch with, say, a teenager today in, in Kabul who's uh, a young woman who can't get that education, etc. What's the conversation that's had about hang on to your hope, believe that you can, you know, be like Sonita and, and um, you know, be potentially going to be a Rhodes Scholar going to Oxford next year? Um, I could say that it's easy, but again, it's so hard for them to hold on to that. It's nothing really solid for them. I think I want them to start uh, having a dreams book for themselves. This is how I started to really fight for my dreams because I had an image of each one of my dreams. This could be one way for them to start since there isn't any uh, source for them really to help them grow mentally. So I think one really good w thing that they could do for themselves is to have a notebook, look here, there, and see if they can see an image of their dream and put mm. it there. Um, and then I really hope they can start to learn about themselves. 
learning about themselves, what they want, what they don't dislike. Once you know what you like and wha- what you don't like, you're going to stand for what you like, right? So that really will push you to uh, move forward because you know where you want to be. I mean, I think w- maybe one of the ways that they, that where they channel their hope is in getting out of Afghanistan and, and a lot of them get out of Afghanistan. In fact, uh, the mass majority of Afghans that flee Afghanistan go to Iran. And there are these millions living in Iran now who are undocumented. What what are the conditions like for um, Afghans who don't have ID in Iran today? Um, it's uh, like we how we lived years ago secretly, trying to uh, not have friends because they would know you're Afghans. Um, then they would probably uh, report you. It's very difficult. My uh, niece, she can't go to school anymore. So basically, she's at home mostly. And whenever she wants to do something like finding a job, that's not a possibility anymore. For she can't them. go to school. Why? Uh, because of not having ID and also... She'll be found know, out, kind of. Right. You can't... Yes. And also, Afghans are charged... Uh, whatever happens at school they get so much money from uh, Afghans mostly um, Afghans work for very very low income and pay a lot of money for what whatever mm. services they ask for that's heartbreaking when you say um, you you try to not have friends so that people don't find out that you're um, Afghan tell, tell me about that um, I should tell you that not all the Iranians are the same, of course. Of course. They can, uh, there are good people who actually will help, like Rukhsara helping me to get here. There are, wherever you go, there are good and bad people. So where they live, it's very, right now, it's, uh, they're not friendly with Afghans, and they just moved there. So they're trying to, uh, keep a low profile um, but uh, I'm hoping in the near future I can help them to come here when I ask a stupid question can you get away with not people not knowing that you I mean don't Afghans have a particular dialect and stuff like when you talk won't can't people tell that you're you're Afghan and when you yeah, speak Farsi yeah. Yeah. if you're a newcomer yes but people who have lived there for a long time you can't really tell the difference right right and and if they are deported, uh, maybe this is an obvious question, but what, what kind of life awaits them back in Afghanistan if they are deported? I mean, are they somehow penalized when they get back to Afghanistan um, for trying to flee in the first place? In, in other words, is it even worse than it already was living under the Taliban? Um, so the people who recently uh, entered in, uh, to Iran, they're... Uh, police officers, their judges, teachers, running away from the Taliban. Even though they say it's fine, you can return, but still they have done so much in the previous government that they fear to go back to Afghanistan. And living in a life in fear, I don't really know what kind of a life mm-hmm. it is. So going back to Afghanistan with no sources left for them, I, I feel like it's worse uh, to be returned to Afghanistan than living um, in Iran, even though discrimination is 
uh, extreme. But is it worse than it was when they were already living in Afghanistan? I mean, in, in other words, is the great fear that you leave and that you get forced to come back, and now you're somebody who tried to leave? Uh, you mean if they go back and then they're in a bad situation that they have to come back? Uh, if they, they go back and the, I don't know, the Taliban, somebody, you know, um, yeah. they, they somehow get penalized uh, because they've tried to, they're a, a police officer that tried to leave the yeah. country. Um, you know, if they're lucky enough to survive if once they're returned to Afghanistan, um, I guess it would be worse. And uh, I know many people who already went back and forth because they were deported. But again, they're normal people. They mm. never, they were never involved with the government. So, with this situation in Afghanistan right now, I don't know if it would really help anyone to live in Afghanistan with poverty, with insecurity, and natural disasters. So I, I've been asking a, a number of Iranians just uh, randomly about Afghans in Iran. And I was trying to get a, a sampling of opinions because mm -hmm. it's easy to bring, not easy, but I mean, it's, it's usually the case that we bring somebody like you on uh, or media brings somebody like you on and empathizes with you and sympathizes with you and sort of says, okay, thank you very much and leaves. Um, but, but there are people who, uh, it, I, even in my circle, it's, it turns out, who I've off the record asked their honest opinion and who, who aren't that sympathetic to Afghans in Iran or, or, or who understand the argument against it. So let me put it to you so you can um, give us your take on this. So first of all, let me say that international human rights groups have documented years of violations against Afghan refugees, migrants in Iran, physical abuse, detention in unsanitary, inhumane conditions, forced payment for transportation and accommodation in camps, slave labor, separation of families. On the other hand, some Iranians will argue that there are already dire economic conditions in Iran and these illegal migrants make the situation worse. You know, there's uh, up to three million refugee, refugee-like populations in Iran. Iran's become the second largest refugee-hosting country in the world after Turkey. It's already a developing country itself. And so the blame for insecurity, for unemployment, ends up on the Afghans. And there are people who are sympathetic to this, sort of saying, what are we supposed to do? What mm -hmm. do you say to them? Um, I don't have an answer, actually, that could be uh, satisfying. But uh, I don't know when you say insecurity what exactly it means, because recently they have uh, there have been uh, several videos, even some of them were fake, made just to uh, help the deportation of Afghan people. Right. And uh, I get it that the economic situation is not good, but again with uh, everything rising. Is it Afghans people's fault? Is it their fault that everything is rising, the, uh, s the economic problem in Iran? I don't think so. Again, I feel like everything is uh, being blamed on Afghans. Mm. And Afghans usually do the worst job that you ask them with no 
guarantee yeah. for their safety, no guarantee that they will be paid for next month. So they're basically being also used uh, doing hard labor work for whoever asks them to work. Again, if Iranian people are sometimes asked to do what Afghans are doing, they would probably reject. Yeah. And uh, my brothers, they used to work um, uh, construction. In, in their situation, I don't think anyone would work in, uh, in winter, in uh, hot summers. They would work, and sometimes they wouldn't even get paid, but they, would, they wouldn't say anything yeah. because they couldn't report anywhere. I mean, the issues are remarkably similar to the way to the issues here or in the United States about Mexican Mexicans, laborers, yeah. et cetera. And they, and they end up being the same arguments where it's like, well, these people are taking our jobs and it's like, well, do you want to do those jobs? They're actually, and they're actually, been, yeah. you know, helping the economy and they're the most dedicated workers and, and all of that. The, the argument I've heard from some Iranians when I put that to them and even say, are you not being a little racist? Is they say, well, but this is disproportionate. I mean, the number of Afghans coming into Iran is not anything like the Syrians who are coming as refugees to Canada. This is a this is directly affecting Iran, and we are in dire straits already. Iran's got enough problems. Um, I get that. I get it that there are uh, millions of Afghans in Iran, but you are talking about illegal immigration, illegal Afghans. But why would you mistreat? the ones who already have legal papers, because this isn't only about illegal right, refugees. Right. This is just, I feel like they're just trying to cover their um, mess with through uh, deporting Afghans and directing again the issue of the government. Right, right. And otherizing a certain number of people and saying they're the problem. If they weren't here, everything would be fine. Basically, yeah. Do you believe that there should be amnesty for undocumented Afghans in Iran? In other words, um, let them stay, uh, let them have the same rights as all Iranians, open the borders, that, that type of thing? Um, I do and I don't because I really uh, hope for Afghans, for all of us to be where we should be in Afghanistan. Mm. I feel like uh, right now Afghanistan is left in the hands of mullahs and whoever is, you know, fundamentalist. I believe um, if we all stay in one place, I know it's really risky for most of us. Mm. But again, if we are uh, scattered in different uh, locations, I don't know if there would be a country of our own. So if it becomes easier for them to travel around the world and stay wherever mm. they wanted to, it would be very bad for Afghanistan. But I think they should uh, consider the situation people who are really in need, like um, soldiers, officers who worked in the previous government, they really should be protected. And what's your relationship with Afghanistan now? I mean, as, as someone who's now left and gone to a fancy university in New York and uh, got, become a Rhodes Scholar and you're here in Toronto and you, you're potentially going to London and you've got the place in New York, et cetera. I mean, do you, do you still feel like Afghanistan is home? And would, if the situation does hopefully change there, would it be something that you would do to return? 
My relationship, um, I do also question that often. Um, it's a little bit difficult. Have you seen the film Terminal? Sure. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like that. You don't know where you really belong. Mm. You have uh, lived in different places and you still don't have an actual home. Um, living in Iran, here, Afghanistan, now it's, um, I don't know, but I do believe that uh, the Taliban won't be always uh, in power. And that's why I'm trying to uh, pursue my master in public policy. So one day I can return to Afghanistan and prepare myself to bring stable, um, sustainable changes. So, and sometimes it really feels uh, sad when I'm with family, they often watch videos from Afghanistan, uh, mostly from Herat. When we turn on the TV, it's not the Herati people that we see. It's mostly people from Pakistan, uh, from Kandahar, from Pakistan, that are in charge of different uh, positions mm. and uh, uh, institutions in Afghanistan, in Herat. So it feels like home is right now taken away from us, but it won't always stay the same. Will you become a politician? Although I don't like them, but I <laughs> will. <laughs> but but you you'll become a likable one, uh, meaning you would you would be. What, I mean, you could be president of Afghanistan one day, a different Afghanistan. That's in my dreams book. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter whatever I become. I just want to go back to Afghanistan when the situation is better so I can do something. Because right now I feel like, sometimes I feel like useless. I don't feel good um, because I live in a good situation and I see so many people suffer don't even have something to eat and that's why i decided to uh, start arazu i wanted to feel a little bit better perfect segue to the to my final question i'm going to ask you about the arazu foundation by the way i think especially over the last year with the uprising in iran that's a, a lot of iranians feel that way this helplessness of what what can I possibly do from here? I mean, I'll right, go to the demonstrations right. and I'll, you know, uh, but but what what can we actually do? What can we? How can we? And so we're left to try and affect the policy of our the governments of where we're living and mm-hmm. and hope that the Canadian government puts the IRGC on the terrorist list or whatever it may be. But it is generally a feeling of helplessness. Yeah, definitely. But again, there are different ways you could. Uh, help like social media is great or demonstration I don't know how much it's going to help right away but it will add to change something in the future so for me I thought Arezu would be good because I'm distributing to Afghanistan and to Afghan people and being a child labor in Iran I thought that would be a good start for my work um, Tell me about Arazu Foundation. What does it do? Arazu, again, it means uh, wish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started, I think, three years ago. And uh, I saw so many um, Afghan working children in Afghanistan when I was there in 2015, I think. Yeah, 
and 16. So I wanted to help those kids to go to school instead of working because this was my situation in Iran. Um, so I started to ask uh, whoever is following me on social media, I started to ask them to donate whatever they can mm. every month so we could sponsor one or two or three kids every month. So this program it went very well, still is going well, uh, that we started to ask uh, families asking for a second family in the U.S. or in other countries. So every month we find two impoverished kids from Afghanistan. We post the picture on social media and then ask people to uh, distant adopt them. Mm. And then we send the $50 to Afghanistan uh, to buy food packages for the kids. And instead of uh, going to work, they could use that uh, package. And that uh, uh, support package will give them the opportunity to stay at home or go to school. Yeah. Basically, be kids. And uh, so far, how we do you find the kids? We have a team of uh, uh, volunteers in Afghanistan who go around and see whoever needs help. And there are a few interviews that we have to do before accepting the kids and then they come um, on the list. I really like it though. It's it's something tangible, right? You see the, uh, I mean, as long as it doesn't set yeah. up a yeah. culture of dependency for the rest of their lives, but you but you see a, a you a, you see the results in, in, in changing a kid's life. Yeah, definitely. Some people might say that this is not uh, going to make any difference in their lives in terms of education and, uh, but, how can it not? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I feel like if you want to help someone, first of all, help them to survive. Because hunger is real in Afghanistan. So with these packages, we try to help them to um, have something to eat. And also whenever they don't need food, they actually tell us that we could mm. spend the money on things like clothing for winter. And uh, one thing that I wanted to mention is that one of the kids that we helped uh, her name was Basmina, and uh, when the Taliban took over, uh, she got shot. Um, her uh, scalp was broken, and uh, she lost vision, um, her left eye. And through Arazu and people who support us on social media, we were able to take her to Pakistan to do a surgery, and after. A few months, she was all fine. She could see wow. again. She could speak. So these are the changes yeah. we are trying to make through RSU. Good on uh, you. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to have you here. I mean, what's happening with the hip hop career? Dad. Aren't you supposed to be dropping some <laughs> new rhymes or whatever the lingo you is? You'll see. You'll be surprised <laughs> soon. <laughs> I feel bad actually because I, I mean, it's not. It's you. You're the self-proclaimed activist, and and it is the work you do. So, well, I'm I'm left to talk to you about that. But I do feel bad that when I see someone like you, or every time I have you on, we have to talk about really heavy subjects. Uh, I can't just you know we can't just we you know, dish about our again. favorite hip hop artists. But but um, hopefully uh, that's another thing that can can come in the future. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, I'm working on a few. Uh, tracks right now one of them is for d-day 
and I'll be performing in France in June 2024. Oh. And so that's going to be... D-Day as in World War II D-Day? Right. <laughs> so Interesting. That's going to be one of my What's your relationship exciting. with D-Day? Um, I write a lot of songs about, you know, if it's not D-Day, uh, but uh, things like... Have you seen... Um, Sarbos, my song. Yes. So yes, of course, yes. But because of that, they thought I could be a good candidate All right. for that. So I'm writing a song for D-Day to perform uh, in France for 4,000 people. I'm very excited. Yeah. Yeah. So And uh, that's going to be my mom's first time to be in a concert, oh. my concert. You're going to bring her to France. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank thanks you, for shedding the insights and thanks for being here in person. And it's always, always uh, an education and um, energizing getting to talk to you. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having me. says Rook episode 292 so as we said earlier in the show we are very saddened by the passing of Iranian classical guitarist Lily Afshar this past week Lily was only in her early 60s and she appeared here on Rook for an interview about three years ago uh, that we'd like to play for you right now from September 10th 2020 this is an interview with the late Lily Afshar taste of Lily Afshar from 2018 performing Asturias by I Albanese. Lily Afshar started playing the guitar in her hometown of Tehran at the age of 10, moved to the United States at the age of 17, and was the first woman in the world to achieve a doctorate of music in guitar performance. She was selected as one of the top 10 guitarists in the world to play for Maestro Andreas Segovia in his master classes held at the University of Southern California. Lily has won numerous prizes in music competitions, including the 2011 Distinguished Alumni Award from the Boston Conservatory, the 2000 Orville H. Gibson Award for Best Female Classical Guitarist in Los Angeles. She's also a three-time winner of the annual Premier Guitarist Awards given by the Memphis chapter of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, and she was chosen as Artistic Ambassador for the United States Information Agency to Africa. 
Lily Afshar has appeared in recitals and concerts at various venues around the world, including the Wigmore Hall in London, the Kennedy Centre for Performing Arts, the Aspen Music Festival, Banff School of Fine Arts, the Menton Music Festival in the south of France, and the American Academy in Rome. She has five recordings and two books to her credit, which have attracted international critical acclaim. Today, Lily is head of the University of Memphis Guitar Program, and she regularly conducts guitar masterclasses in conjunction with her touring. And right now, Lily Afshar joins me from Memphis, Tennessee. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well. It's I'm, I'm very happy to have you on the program. Thank you for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I have to make a correction to the bio you read. I have actually seven CDs, not five. <laughs> okay, we underestimated you. Uh, five, rec- seven recordings. We'll fix that for sure. Um, uh, Lily, it's uh, mesmerizing listening to what you do. First of all, we're living in this moment of COVID and this pandemic. Uh, which has affected musicians in all kinds of ways, especially those who do live concerts. Um, So I was assuming this had curbed your ability to do some of what you do in the interim, but is it true that you went to Iran in recent months? Yes. And what was that like? It was actually very nice. And uh, I taught uh, classes in three different cities and... uh, I enjoyed it. I and I, I spent the time at the Caspian Sea and went swimming, and it was very nice. So you weren't um, you weren't intimidated or scared to be traveling uh, during this period when? No, no, I wasn't. No. And did you? And I mean, we hear conflicting reports about the state of COVID in Iran. Did it feel? basically the same as the United States to you there in terms of the level of of, of the pandemic? Or did you feel uh, more scared being there? I wasn't scared at all, no. I, I, I wasn't uh, in uh, public, per se. You know, I wasn't hanging out with many people or in groups. So I was mostly uh, by myself and I kept my distance. And even my classes were done, like I said, with six feet apart and uh, with uh, masks on, so it was fine. I know you go there, back there quite regularly to Iran. Do you, do you ever have issues traveling back and forth from the United States and performing in Iran? No, I don't. They've never. There's never been some kind of. You, you don't worry about. I don't know. There's so we speak to so many musicians on this program who have trepidation about going to Iran, but it seems like it's been. I okay. have no trepidation. I have. I, I travel easily and I have no problems. And they've never said anything about expectations or put boundaries on what you do, or not really. I mean, uh, the you know, I, I wear my uh, rusari, my scarf there, and I I I cover up uh, when I perform, and uh, I usually don't have any issues there. <laughs> It's interesting that you live in Memphis and that you've been there for many years. You're a professor there. I, I, I guess I'm not the first person to say this. I, I think of Memphis, of course, as a music town, but one usually associates it with country music, not elegant classical guitar. How, how did you end up in Memphis? Well, first of all, Memphis is associated with the blues, not country music. Country music is Nashville. Nashville, sorry, yes. Okay, right. fair enough. And many people make that mistake. So no, we we do a lot of uh, uh, blues here, but at the university, 
uh, of course they teach classical and uh, there are a few orchestras in memphis memphis symphony orchestra the iris orchestra so there's a lot of classical music going on here as well what was the sorry what was the initial precipitant for you going to memphis was it the professorship yes i got this job uh the day after i got my doctorate so i moved to memphis i really didn't know anything about memphis except that elvis lived here <laughs> right so right. uh I had to actually look it up on the map, and uh, but they wanted me here, so I moved here, and it's been good, and I've stayed here now 31 years. By the way, that's uh, um, I- I'm not sure you know how lucky you are as someone who has a couple of professors in my family who spent... Um, um, a fair bit of time after getting their PhD, um, hoping to get a job, and until they finally landed one, uh, that's not so bad. The day after you graduate, to 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 have a plum gig. Yeah, it was like made for me, you know. <laughs> Is there much of a Persian community in Memphis? I would say about a thousand. I'm 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 assuming it's probably grown in the last thirty years. You've been there too. Yeah, well, it's grown to a thousand. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, from zero. <laughs> I, I, I don't not know. What, it wasn't zero. No, not, when you went there, were you? Get, how many Persians were there in town when you got to Memphis? I, I understand there were a lot during the time of the Shah because uh, they would get scholarship and come to the university. Uh, for example, as far as I know, we have more than 30 students now studying engineering at the University of Memphis have some Iranian professors and in town there are a lot of families with kids so there are quite a bit that we have a, even an Iranian association of Memphis so oh, wow. it's enough to have an association and are you involved in that are you known as the local once in a while I've performed I've performed for them once in a while you know you are remarkable at what you do and when someone is a virtuoso it's often assumed that they have this gift that was within them from childhood and your story is something like that tell me what happened at 10 years old when you saw your cousin taking a guitar lesson yeah i was visiting my cousin and i attended her uh, guitar lesson and she couldn't do the things that the teacher told her uh, so I wanted to uh, grab the guitar from her and play it myself. And I, I felt this incredible uh, urge to do that. So I ran home and told my father, Daddy, I love the guitar. And the next day he surprised me with her guitar <laughs> in a basket uh, with her music book. And that's when I started playing the guitar. He, he got me a teacher and that's that's where how it started so one of the consequences of you learning uh, you your desire for guitar was that your cousin was stripped of her guitar <laughs> apparently she wasn't that interested so <laughs> Nijah daddy you 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 freed her from having to play play, play the guitar uh, yes. so yes. so just so i get the story right so you didn't you were not you you had not played the guitar before and yet your instinct was to to want to pick it up and take it away from her and and play it Yes, we had music in the house. We had piano in the house. We had violin. We even had a, somebody played folk guitar. But I would always listen and just listen from afar, you know. 
but it was that classical guitar, the beautiful sound of the classical guitar that triggered me into wanting to play it. And it was the instrument I really wanted to play. I, I discovered it right there and then. And then I started listening to Segovia recordings and it all, a whole new world was opened for me. I was actually thinking about that because you were, I'm, I'm guessing this is now, it's the early 70s, and I'm wondering why uh, a little girl in Tehran who um, could be starting to get into Persian pop music of the time or uh, wh why you would gravitate towards classical music and classical guitar. Do you know what it was about it that captured your imagination? It was the beautiful sound of the classical guitar. It has a special sound, you know, like if I just play the open strings here. This beautiful sound is what I wanted. And uh, it's just, I love, fell in love with it. It was love at first sight. What can I say? Because like I said, we had folk guitar, that's with steel strings. Right. But that didn't, I, I was not interested in playing and singing. But classical guitar, has a different warmer quality and you can play it by yourself and you don't have to sing so uh that's what it just spoke to me right there and then you know what's amazing about the texture of the sound that you make um in some cases i was going to get to this one we're going to play a, a bit of another song from you but but um Honestly, it's sometimes because I, I know nylon string guitars or, or classical uh, guitars, the sound sometimes can um, not be as pointed as it is with you. It, in some of your performances, it almost sounds like you're playing a piano. It's quite remarkable. What is that sound that we're hearing? Well, we spend many, many hours and years working on our tone uh, with the classical guitar. Uh, the, the beauty of the classical guitar is the tone that you produce on it. And it has to do with the shape of your nails in the right hand and uh, how you strike the strings. So we spent many, many, many years perfecting that tone. Each person has their own special tone. You want to shoot for a warm, well-rounded tone. And that's why it sounds like a piano. It's a full, rich, bodied tone. To be honest, I'm. it's one of the first times I've heard classical guitar that way, listening to you play that piano sound. It, it, it's, it's almost shocking in some cases, in some of your pieces, to, to, to it's also the facility, the way you're playing it. Um, it's almost shocking sometimes to think that you're picking on a guitar. It, it's, it's a really interesting, mean, I'm guessing I'm not the first person who's said this to you about the uh, piano sound. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's about right. It sounds like a piano or sometimes some pieces they say it sounds like two guitars. But you see, maybe you've been listening mostly to flamenco or uh, jazz or pop. Uh, classical is a very quiet instrument. And uh, when, when somebody plays classical guitar, you don't speak, you don't make noise, you just listen to, in order to be able to hear all the intricacies of the instrument and there are a lot of intricacies and uh, so uh, that's what's special about this instrument it's just a very quiet delicate instrument but it sounds like a small orchestra hmm. so when you gravitate towards it as a as a kid your dad gets you that guitar um 
when did the time come when you realized that this is not just something that uh, you fancy and that you're enjoying and that that you had asked your dad to you know for or told your dad that you love, but something that could actually be something that will become your career? Well, right away, I would lock myself up in my room and not come out. Uh, I would spend many, many hours behind the closed door uh, just trying to discover this guitar and play all the notes on all the frets and listen carefully to every note ringing. Wow. And uh, it was like a magic box to me. And my father would say, Lily, come out of your room so we can see you. Because I would just stay there, lock myself up. <laughs> and uh, I gave up skiing. I gave up uh, painting. I gave up a lot of things. I, I just focused on the guitar. It was my life from the beginning. Um, now, I didn't know that you could study this as a degree uh, in college. I didn't know you could major in it while I was living in Iran. It was only after I came to the U.S. that I discovered, oh, yes, you can get a degree in classical guitar. And that's when I went to Boston Conservatory to study it. I'm going to ask you about that. But before that, just this, this image of you in your bedroom with the door closed, um, it feels like it's quite a solitary uh, experience, um, uh, what you do with the, with the classical guitar. I mean, partly because most of the time we see you perform, there might be one other person or a couple of other people on stage, but, but you are alone. Uh, and also because of um, the, the regimen of it, um, you don't really... Uh, I'm guessing you don't you don't go into it expecting that you're going to be in a band. You you go into it wanting to experience the majesty of what you're doing alone. So is it an instrument that when you're teaching that you kind of have to um, warn extroverts about or people who are in need of a lot of attention that this is going to require a lot of private time? People who play classical guitar know that it's going to take many years to perfect and that they need to put in the time and the discipline to practice. You don't go in a practice room with other people. You have to go by yourself. And practicing takes a lot of time, a lot of thinking, a lot of repetition. And uh, you just you know that. I mean, it's not just specific to classical guitar. It's specific to violin and other instruments, sure. piano. Sure. Uh, if, if you want to, you know, make it your profession but uh people know that and they're willing to put in the time because the satisfaction of improving and getting better at it is much more than the time that you put in if you're really into it you'll never say oh my god i practice i have to go practice you just go do it i understand but i can tell you as a as a drummer um, <laughs> at 10 years old, uh, it implicated the whole house when I was practicing my drums. I couldn't go quietly do it in a private way and in, in my bedroom. Right. So, um, With that, yeah, that's the beauty of the classical guitar. It doesn't bother anybody. You can get up at 4 a.m. and just play softly by yourself. And I've done that many times. And it just really suits my uh, personality to have something that's mine and I don't have... A, you know, I can spend many hours with it, and then when I'm ready, I go share it on stage with everyone. You're you're someone who's comfortable being alone. Yes. 
you know, the traditional, I know you come from a, uh, a good, well-off, uh, a pro- prominent uh, Iranian family. So I'm, I'm sure on some level or another, uh, you or, or family members would have expected to, to go into certain professions that, uh, you know, the middle and middle upper, upper class Iranians are always expected to do. Were they supportive of a, of a prospective music career for you? Yes, I never had, nobody ever told me what to go study, really. I made up my own mind and I was supported, yes. So tell me about leaving Iran in the period before the revolution. What what was the uh, the precipitant for leaving and what do you remember about that time? Well, in my family, we always went to Europe or the U.S. to go to college and it was just a tradition. So I went to uh an international high school in Tehran. And once I finished, uh, during the time I, on my 12th grade, I was applying to colleges in the US. And it, so when I got accepted, I left. And I'm assuming you're, you, you went, your family stayed in Iran. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have to come with me, right. Well, so because you wouldn't return to Iran for about 20 years. So uh, I'm not sure if you knew at the time when you were leaving that this was going to be um, you were going to be leaving the country for a long time. No, um, I didn't know. And I got the summer of my freshman year. And then that was the last time I went back because the revolution broke after that. And then I just stayed in the States. How quickly did you assimilate? I, I, you know, I was watching um, old videos of you that you're already playing for Segovia by the mid 1980s. So, so I, I, I'm guessing you adjusted pretty well. Did music help your assimilation into America? Well, you know, the guitar has opened has always opened doors for me. I've, I've met many people through the guitar, and uh, I've traveled because of the guitar and. I've, you know, I've, when I was a student, I entered a lot of competitions, guitar competitions. So I would meet other uh, guitarists and teachers. Uh, you know, I, I traveled all the time because of the guitar. I, I even studied in Europe, in Italy, uh, for example, because of my guitar. I went to academy in Siena three years. And I would say it opened many doors. I won many competitions and I met many people. What was it like um, after after 20 years of, of being in the States and, and uh, you decide you'll go back to Iran for the first time? This is during uh, Khatami. Uh, um, what, what was it like to go back for the first time? It was exhilarating and uh, it was exciting. I had uh, my concert there and there were many family members and guitarists there uh for me iran had changed a lot and i was experiencing it again i mean i would try and go to the old streets that i knew and i couldn't find my way around i I must say everything had changed so i was trying to learn about it again from the beginning your first concert was at back at at rudecky hall right yes and tell me how an audience affects you i mean uh do you when you're playing the classical guitar does it matter who the audience is and did it was it somehow different playing for an iranian audience for the first time i mean an iranian audience in iran for the first time in a couple of decades 
Well, yes, uh, it was. I was going back to the, my country. It, it was, it was a dream that I had when I was a kid. I, I dreamt that I would perform all over Iran, and that was my goal one day to be so good that I would just play concerts all over Iran. And finally, I had come to play my first concert there. Uh, and the other thing is that my family members, a lot of them were sitting in the audience. So I had to, that was kind of distracting for me. I wasn't used to seeing family members and I had to really focus hard not to uh, get thrown off <laughs> when I was performing. When, uh, of course, you get, it's like, what's what's she been up to for the last 20 years? You wanted to deliver. When you talk about being a, a kid and dreaming of, of touring and and which you've now something you've you've gone on to accomplish uh were you always i mean i i don't want you to be uh, uh don't worry about being immodest or uh, here were you always good at this i mean was it obvious to your friends say in tehran when you were 14 or 15 years old that lily is going to be one of the best in the world at this it was obvious i think to my father uh, who who uh, saw me really diligently working on the guitar. Um, I think my friends uh, didn't really know how far I could go because they didn't really know. Nobody knew. Uh, they 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 thought it was really interesting that I played guitar and was constantly practicing and uh, playing some concerts. Um, they didn't have the insight to know about the future, but my father did. And he encouraged me. He said, uh, keep diligence and you'll reach an international level. Is your father a musician? Yes, uh, he played violin and piano, but he was also an engineer. So he recognized musically how, how good you were. Yes, he recognized and he knew me well and he put me on the right path and encouraged me when necessary are your parents still around no oh. uh, i want to play a little taste of something uh, lily from 2008 uh that i found on youtube that was really really engrossing for me take take a listen to this <laughs> and something called Five Popular Persian Ballads. Of course, we just played a little taste of it there. It goes on. I, I just find that so captivating, that this piece of music. What can you tell us about this? This piece is called Darenejan, as is June, and it's a Persian folk song. The, the whole thing is that there wasn't any Persian music that was well arranged for the classical guitar that I could play in concerts. I was playing music from all over the world, but I didn't have anything Persian. So I decided to arrange some Persian folk music. 
And this one is from Mazandaran, uh, north, you know, along the Caspian Sea. And the, the melody is this. And then I decided to turn this into a tremolo piece. And uh, one day I was walking in the supermarket and I just heard it in my head. And I came back home and wrote it down. Like that. And that's a tremolo technique, which is exclusive to the classical guitar, these repeated fast repeated notes and it turned out a beautiful piece after that it's played a lot by different people i love it i love it so much i love what you just played it it's killing me that you're not in the studio with us so we could just uh, <laughs> ha have you play full pieces here and, and uh, i wouldn't even talk to you i just say okay just play so so um but that's really interesting so there's is that to say that there really isn't a tradition of uh classical guitar uh in iran until you the music is not arranged the persian music uh in this form is not arranged for the guitar i mean this is the concert standard you know the way i've done them they're virtuosic pieces you need a lot of technique to be able to play these and um I think before me, there uh, there hasn't been anything substantial uh, that can be played on solo guitar on a concert, international concert stage. So classical guitar players in Iran would traditionally be playing things composed and arranged by, say, Europeans. Yes, there is a standard classical guitar repertory that everyone plays. They play Bach, they play uh, uh, Villa Lobos, Brazilian composer, they play music by soar from the classical period uh that's that's a spanish composer 18th century they play uh giuliani italian composer there's carcassi caruli i mean there's standard pieces so we can for years i've been playing that kind of music and i still do but a portion of my program is always now persian and Azeri music arranged for guitar by myself it's so interesting because I, I don't know if you know Layla Ramazan. She she was on our program. She lives in Vienna now, but she's a uh, of Iranian descent. She's a classical pianist. And her mission has been quite successfully. She's put out a couple of albums now doing this, uh, rediscovering uh, classical piano composers from Iran, Iranian classical piano, which basically... Uh, is a 20th century phenomenon uh, yes, and, and yes. is different from, you, you know, uh, piano, classical piano in, in other parts of the world. Uh, what's interesting about that is she's excavating music that was already in existence. You're creating this is what you're saying. You're you're actually creating yes. a, a new canon of um, Persian arrangements of classical guitar. That's fantastic. Yes. And Azari, Azari arrangements. From oh. Azerbaijan, yes. And and your is your family Azeri? Yes. Ah, as is my mother. She'll be very happy at this news. Great. <laughs> yeah, my last name is my f full last name is Afshar Azardot. Means ah. I am Azeri. Ah, 
I, I love the idea that you only have one guitar. I found this quite shocking because most people in your position, uh, I mean, we had our dear friend Bob Akamini on the show uh, a couple of uh, months ago. And of course, he has this lineup of guitars. You know, he has a a room in his house with all his guitars. Like most uh, professional musicians, they've got a number. Tell me about the, the, I don't know, the the magic or the the intention between having uh, one guitar. Look, do you do you change your best friend, or do you keep him forever? It's like that, you know. I mean, it's my best friend, and when I play on some other guitar, I feel like, uh, uh, you know, first of all, it's it's not doing me any justice because it's I, I haven't seen anything better than my guitar. I'm comfortable with my guitar. We're friends. We know each other. We I've been playing on my guitar since 1992, and uh, you know, I know what to do to what kind of a sound from my guitar, where to put my hand, my right hand, and where to, and I, I feel confident with it. So I'm not going to change it just because there are many other guitars around. I'm guessing you have a really um, well thought out way of maintaining this guitar, making sure that this guitar never gets into any trouble. Basically, don't hand it to anyone. <laughs> right. That's why you have it in your hands right now. So you don't even have a backup? I mean, you don't have a... If you're doing a concert, there's not a second guitar sitting on the side of the stage in case something happens, a string breaks, uh, uh, the, this guitar stops working somehow, something happens? No, no. I don't need to do that. I haven't ever had that issue. If a string breaks, I change it. Uh, there's a way I maintain my strings. I mean... I won't go on stage with bad strings, so everything's always ready to go, so nothing bad like that ever happens. Besides, my guitar is a, has a special construction, and it's made especially for me, and not, not every guitar is built this way, and it's I'm comfortable with the way this is built. And Sorry, how is it made for you? You mean it's size? It's like a particular size? No, no it's... It's not the size, it's the neck. The neck is the special construction. It's called the Millennium Model, uh, made by Thomas Humphrey. And the neck is raised. You go up, uh, the neck is raised off the face of the guitar, and it, you just have to see it. I can't explain it on, you know, online. And how does that benefit you, to, to have the neck raised? It benefits me in that uh, it, the guitar projects much better and it's easier to play huh and what's the name of your guitar millennium model by thomas humphrey no i mean the name you have a name for your guitar don't you it's lily (laughs) and where'd you get that name (laughs) i got it from lily (laughs) yes I was seeing if you could have any uh, appreciation for my humor. Uh, um, well, I have watched your collaboration with Nam Ju. Um, and uh-huh. t- tell me about the energy you get from pushing musical boundaries by uh, by playing with others. Is that something that you want to pursue more? Yeah, uh, I had fun doing that impromptu performance with Mr. Nam Ju. You know, we never practiced or anything. Oh, I asked really? him, I said, can we practice, go go through these pieces once? He says, no, 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 let's just go on stage. Oh, I didn't know that. And as a classical musician, I'm not, I'm not used to that. You know, we practice for hours beforehand. 
But I, I said, okay, and we went up and uh, he had his setar and I had my guitar and we just played, uh, I played some of these arrangements I had made and he, he just went along on the setar with me and it was really thrilling. It was spontaneous, it was fun. I had no idea that was freeform, that that was uh, improvisational. I thought that, I thought for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. So, Lily, yeah. before I let you go, uh, you, you've, you've alluded to this, but you are, I understand you're working on a new album of Iranian and Azeri folk songs that you want to record on your next trip back to Iran. Is that right? Correct, yes. So tell, t- first of all, tell me what this, what these songs are. Are they songs that are already written or are you composing them? Where they're already written, this is folk music. Folk music, you know, has been around for a long, long time. And I take this folk music, I take the melody, I, I put harmony to it, and I adapt it for the guitar, make a new piece out of it. This is called arranging. And uh, that's what I did with that energy on, for example, that you played. And uh, I use different techniques of the guitar, like tremolo, harmonics, and I, I use this and make it a, a piece that it's as if it's written for the guitar by the time I'm done with it. Yes, I, I, I do know what arranging is. I, I thought um, I was suggesting that maybe you were writing something in this style of uh, Azari folk song since you, uh, um, uh, do, you, do, yeah. you, do you compose ever? A lot of the arranging has composing composing in it because what are you going to do with just a line of melody? Uh-huh. You have to add your own composition to it. For example, me making that Daranejan into a tremolo piece is a composition. Right. And uh, it's a composition together with arranging. They go hand in hand. I have the material, but I am the one who you know, designs it and puts it together in a new format. And why do you why do you feel like you need to record that in Iran? Well, I have a contact in a recording studio. I've I've done CDs there before. My C- CD One Thousand One Nights had been done there, and uh, I've published there. So I'm very active there and. I have three months of the summer, so I can use the time to do the recording there. It's a good pleasure to get to talk to you and to hear a little bit about your process and what you do. Thank you for your time today. Do you, we want to go out on some music by uh, Lily Afshar. Do you have a current favorite from your, uh, I mean, I've got the four records that are on Spotify, but um, uh, that's, I'm limited to that, but I can, we can pull something off YouTube. Do you have a, something currently that you really like that you'd like us to play? You can play Recuerdos de la Alhambra. It's on my Jug of Wine CD. And that uses that tremolo piece that sounds like two guitars. Lily, thank you so much for this today. You're welcome. Hope to see you soon. Merci. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That's the outstanding guitarist, Lily Afshar also the head of the uh, University of Memphis Guitar Program. She joined us from Memphis, Tennessee today. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. This is Full Time for Rook for today. Remember to subscribe, uh, share our content. Um, 
tell people about it. Uh, you can go to any of our platforms and post your comments or find us at info at rookmedia.com. Thanks to the whole Rook team for all your hard work. And uh, we're going to go out on some Lily Afshar. Mizun Bashin.
There you go. From September 10th, 2020, that is an interview with Lily Afshar. Uh, Lily passed away this past week. Quite suddenly, it felt like. Um, we don't know all the details, but we know she will be tremendously missed. The great classical guitarist, Lily Afshar, um, rest in peace. This is Full Time for Rook for today. Thank you so much for listening. For all the information you need about Rook, for all of our back episodes, our videos, our funnies, our moments, clips, rookmedia.com r-o-q-e media.com is the website thanks to the amazing team who put this show together Super Parisa Methodical Cave, Bearded Omid Savvy Roham Smart Pega Talented Anahita Sound Person Louise thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content please subscribe if you haven't done so already you can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. You can find us on Instagram at Rook Media. In the meantime, Mizunbashi. Bashi.